You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. In our last podcast, we mentioned that Marxist Humanist Initiative is hosting a series of meetings discussing Marx's critique of the Gotha program. Well, today's episode is a little bit different than our normal format. We're going to play for you a recording of a presentation that Andrew gave on the first of those meetings about Marx's critique of the Gotha program. The presentation is a summary of a much longer unpublished paper that Andrew has written on the topic. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll hear Andrew Kleiman talking about a paper he's written about Marx's critique of the Gotha program. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. We are recording this current event section on July 28th, and we're going to be talking about a piece that came out in Jacobin magazine on July 26th. It's called I'm a Ukrainian Socialist, Here's Why I Resist the Russian Invasion. It's by Taras Bilaus. Not sure how he pronounces it. Andrew, this might be the first time we have discussed a Jacobin piece that we're uh, mostly in agreement with. Yeah, well, wonders never cease. I guess it's the, the second coming of Ferdinand LaSalle or something. <laughs> this was a surprise to me because we have been criticizing the line of Jacobin, uh, Noam Chomsky, and others in the so-called anti-imperialist left whose perception of the Ukrainian war deprives the Ukrainians themselves of any agency or doesn't recognize their need for self-determination and makes all sorts of apologetics for Russia, focuses all their blame on NATO and the U.S., and even characterizes Russia as having these so-called legitimate security concerns, etc. This is a really stark argument against all those points written by a socialist from Ukraine. And it appeared uh, at the top of Jacobin Magazine a couple of days ago. What did you think was most significant in the piece by him? A lot of the points that the author is making are points that we, we've discussed previously, like in our interview with Rohini Hensman. So, so it wasn't like there were any theoretical points that were particularly new, but the fact that this was appearing in Jacobin was really striking. I can only imagine that there's been enough criticism of their line on this that they felt compelled to acknowledge this other point of view. Right. There could be, you know, criticism from outside of their line, and so they decided to present a contrasting view in their pages, or that there is dissension within their milieu, that there are splits going on, and to try to keep peace, they're basically being both sides within their milieu. Yeah, I think that latter might be the point. I mean, I'm looking at their the Facebook page where they've posted this article, and there are 308 comments... And you can see, you hear both sides of, of the issue for the whole thread. There's a whole bunch of people in agreement with the article, and there are several very loud people not in agreement with the article. Right. I, I think that, you know, that kind of section of the left is facing trouble. The whole fake anti-imperialist, knee-jerk, you know, anti-American people, they're taking a big hit over this just because... Russian imperialist aggression is so blatant with respect to the Ukraine, uh, and this did get a lot of uh, media coverage. 
and you know so so there are, are tensions and splits uh, from within what I thought was so interesting though is that the author Taras Bilos or however you pronounce his name has gone on record since the start of the war criticizing some of the major players in, in Jacobin by name uh, he had a piece in Open Democracy, I think it was on February 28, right after the war started, and he calls out Branko Marchetic, and he calls out David Broder, who is Jacobin's Europe uh, editor, and after talking about what Broder says, he says, this is what he said back in February, Billow said, a large part of the Western left should honestly admit that it completely fucked up in formulating its response to the, quote, Ukrainian crisis. But in this recent piece in Jacobin, he does not explicitly criticize any Jacobin writers like Marchetic by name. And he goes out of his way to point to something that they said in, in Jacobin. Somebody wrote, you know, a personal piece in Jacobin that, that was non-terrible. But, you know, when he says... The main thing that I feel from uh, the discussions that I've had is fatigue and disappointment, being forced to rebut obviously false Russian propaganda, too much time explaining why Moscow had no, quote, legitimate security concerns to justify war, too much time asserting the basic premise of self-determination. You know, he's having those discussions and he's being fatigued and disappointed by the reactions of a lot of people who have probably either ties to, to Jacobin or same kind of politics. But it, you, you can see from his article that there are real tensions in, in, in that camp because of what he says about negotiations. He, he goes into saying, okay, what they're doing now is they're calling for negotiations, which is completely empty. It doesn't mean anything. Even unconditional surrender gets negotiated, right? So there's a a section of the so-called left that is experiencing a lot of internal tensions, and they're they're trying all kinds of ways to to keep their stuff together. And empty calls for negotiations, you know, who can disagree with that, right? It doesn't do anything, but it keeps everybody on board behind their leadership, I guess. I mean, yeah, and this is a guy who's, according to his article, is engaged in He's serving in the territorial defense forces, so he's presumably joined out by the day to defend his country, and then he comes home and has to like defend <laughs> the actions of Ukraine on the internet from all these uh, so-called leftists that are condemning the Ukrainians for resisting Putin's in- invasion. So I think just it's like just the embarrassment of the position of the uh, Putin apologists is just so on the nose, like it's it's hard to ignore it, and I. So I think you're right. There must be some, there's a real break in the dam here. The thing is that there are very, very deep-seated problems with the left. It's not just like they, quote, fucked up on the Ukrainian crisis. I mean, as he says, you know, he points to what they said about Syria. He pointed to to campism. It's very deeply rooted. They're not going to right their ship, so to speak, without a lot of soul-searching. And there will have to be serious splits. I don't know if it's going to come to that. It's, it's also just the international situation is likely to generate more of these sorts of situations where the left has to take a position on conflicts between capital states. As the U.S. becomes less powerful on the international stage, as you know, global conflicts present themselves in the horizon, Russia, China, the U.S., Europe, like the left is going to have to figure out how to deal with the fact that there's more than one capitalist state actor on the world stage. And 
the whole of like international politics can't f- fit into like a neat fairy tale where there's one aggressor nation and everyone else is a victim. That'll be very interesting. I mean, he takes a very strong position calling for the military defeat of, of, of Russia and Putin. And that was, you know, not his line at the start of the war. It's not what we said either, because it looked like, you know, at that point, a, a pro-democracy movement within Russia might still succeed. And Putin has managed to push the dissidents uh, underground, in prison, in exile, and so forth. And and so Taras Bulos says, what we have to do to get democracy in Russia is first we need the military defeat of Russia in this war, then we may get regime change in Russia and, and, and democracy. Which is really interesting because it's, for somewhat different reasoning perhaps, it's just like what Karl Marx said about like the civil war in the United States and the uh, Irish uh, fight for uh, national self-determination against Britain, you know, shortly after that, and what we in MHI said about uh, Trumpism. I mean, they first have to be defeated, then we're going to get, you know, some change uh, that can lead to the, the Trumpite base moving away from Trumpism, you know, or Marx was saying uh, the English proletariat moving away from, from English nationalism and white supremacy in the United States uh, taking a big hit in the consciousness of, of, of working people. You know, there is enough, I guess, pro-Putin uh, nationalistic sentiment in, in, in Russia that helps keep him in power. So I think there, you know, there is some connection, but it, it was just striking because I, I think he's right, but the, you know, it, it was not that obvious just a few months ago, and now it's like, yeah, Putin has got to go, but the only way to get Putin to go at this moment, the, the internal opposition just is, is is too weak so they russia has to be defeated militarily i'm, I'm actually surprised that the, the jacobin published that because of what it means is we we have to take a, a stand not only for ukraine we have to take a stand for anything all, all arming of, of of ukraine to help them win the war i don't know how you know how much people understood the implications of what he's saying but you know let me, let me just say, I think one of the the more important things he said, besides the military defeat for the Russian invasion, is that, you know, as we've talked about when we talked about Chomsky and so forth, so much of the left, and you said it earlier, you know, just wants to view the Ukrainians as, as passive victims that we should sympathize with, but not to take seriously in terms of what they're telling us needs to be done, you know, just ignore them as, as real thinking people on on the historic stage and together with that he points out that why are the ukrainians fighting tooth and nail to the death it's not because of the u.s and it's not even because of the zelensky government or anything like that it's because of the ukrainian people themselves he makes a very big issue of that so i thought that was very important and he says at a certain point no one is more eager for the war to end than we who live in ukraine but it is also important to ukrainians how exactly the war will end so, you know, all this call to end the war, negotiations, peace, it, it, it's, all, it's all nonsense unless you grapple with the question of are the Ukrainians going to be allowed to have their own country and, and to live the way they want or are big powers going to, you know, impose something on them and where do you stand on that? That's really the question and it's not going to go away. Well, that's all the time we have on this topic. I'm sure we will return to this topic. Up next is a recording of a presentation that Andrew gave on July 31st of this year. 
during a meeting that MHI, Marxist Humanist Initiative, is hosting uh, about Marx's critique of the Gotha program. Andrew's presentation is a summary, shortened, condensed form of a much longer paper he's written about Marx's critique of the Gotha program. It covers a variety of topics, as you'll see. I'm sure listeners will find it quite provocative and interesting. So please do write to us with questions, comments, thoughts. We'd love to engage with more people on these issues. Today's meeting is going to focus on the text of the critique of the Gotha program hereafter CGP. Uh, I think the most important meeting for us, MHI, is the third meeting on the CGP's organizational implications. Uh, Our organization has a fairly good grasp of the text, but we need to deepen our understanding of Raya Dunyevskaya's argument that the CGP created a, quote, new ground for organization, and we especially need to do more to fight for this perspective. And so that's why, even though today's meeting is on the text of the CGP, we've also included Marx's letter to Braca as a reading uh, to help ensure that our discussion of the CGP doesn't get decoupled from its organizational implications. Uh, Marx's new ground for organization is a completely different ground from that of standard Marxism and indeed from the left generally. For a century and a half, they have prioritized organization building and for the sake of supposed unity, they've decoupled organization from theory and philosophy. You can think whatever you want. That's your own private business. What is essential is that you subordinate your thinking to the all-important task of organization building. That's the mentality. In contrast, Marx's letter to Braca, which he sent along with his critique, opposed the unification of the Eisenacher and Lasallian parties because, quote, our, our position is altogether remote from the said program of principle. The Gotha program showed that the Lasallians were not moving towards Marxist Marxism even a bit. So he thought that unification with them wasn't warranted. Instead, the Eisenachers, quote, should simply have concluded an agreement for action against the common enemy, not unification. Uh, It's important today to deepen the fight for the new ground uh, for organization that Dunyevskaya identified, because the very future of Marxist humanism hangs in the balance. Uh, The clique, headed by Kevin Anderson and Peter Hudis, has been doing a hell of a lot to subordinate Marxist humanism to the organizations and organization-like publications of the mainstream left. Uh, It does this by promoting a truncated and abstract version of so-called Marxist humanism, uh, something that sounds nicely philosophical and humanistic, but doesn't concretely posit Marxist humanism as an alternative to the organizational supremacy or politics of the powers that be on the left. Marxist humanism gets turned into mawkish Hudism. And this serves to make Marxist humanism safe for social democracy. It creates a way for people to think whatever they want to be so-called Marxist humanists in their own minds, while subordinating the nicely philosophical and humanistic contents of their minds to the powers that be on the left. We need to double down in the fight against this. The future of Marxist humanism is at stake. Uh, And I want to say to the invited guests, I think the most important contribution you can make to a Marxist humanist discussion of the CGP is to help get the word out, 
that MHI is fighting for a new ground for organization. Um, beginning with the uh, unification at Gotha, Second International Marxism made a fetish of organization and party building, building the mass party or building a vanguard organization to lead the mass party. Even the post-Marx Marxists who appreciated spontaneity the most, such as Luxembourg and the Council Communists, did that. None of them recognized that the CGP had created a new ground for organization, or maybe they did recognize that, but they ignored it. Uh, I want to suggest that this failure regarding organization is bound up with their failure to appreciate or build upon the economic theory sketched out in the CGP, its discussion of the transformation of capitalism into communism. And the failure to build upon that had a lot to do with the fact that after Marx's time, monopoly capitalism overtook competitive capitalism. The privileging of organization and the separation of organization from theory and philosophy flowed from a particular economic conception, namely that socialism is essentially just like monopoly capitalism, except that the workers have taken over. Uh, Ryodunyevskaya characterized that conception as follows in Marxism and Freedom. Quote, Hilferding describes monopolistic control as if, as if it overcame the anarchy of the market. His theoretical conceptions are of a smooth, well-oiled mechanism of events. As monopoly capitalism brought order into the national market, so the workers will take over and bring order out of the anarchy of the international market. Capitalism seemed to second international Marxists to be organizing the economy, removing planlessness, and thus making it easier for the workers to take over, as if it were merely a matter of replacing one set of office holders with another. Now, if that seems like an exaggeration, listen to what Lenin wrote in The State and Revolution. Quote, We, the workers, shall organize large-scale production on the basis of what capitalism has already created, a witty German social democrat called the Postal Service, an example of the socialist economic system. This is very true. At the present, the Postal Service is a state capitalist monopoly, but once we have overthrown the capitalists, we shall have a splendidly equipped mechanism which can very well be set going by the United Workers themselves to organize the whole economy on the lines of the Postal Service, all under the control and leadership of the armed proletariat. That is our immediate aim. So, in Lenin's view, workers' political managerial control of the economy is the defining difference between capitalism and socialism. And the reason who controls is the defining difference is that he regards the economy as an essentially neutral set of mechanisms. Once the workers manage these mechanisms in their own interests and organize them even more fully, the result is socialism. Marx had the opposite view. He argued that capital's aim the ceaseless self-expansion of value has transformed economic relations to such an extent that the present-day economy is not neutral, but an essentially capitalistic process. And an essentially capitalistic process is not something to take over. It's got to be smashed and replaced by a completely different, human-centered complex of economic relations. Once one abandons Marx's view of the specificity of capitalism, one also abandons the idea that any specifically economic change is needed to transform capitalism into socialism. 
the transformation is regarded as political, a change in who governs and manages the economy. And with this, one also abandons the idea that the transformation of capitalism into socialism requires theoretical labor to work out exactly what economic relations have to be changed and how. And one abandons the idea that a philosophy of new human relations needs to be front and center in our thinking to ensure that the process of social transformation is actually guided by the goal of creating a new human-centered economy and society. Changes in who governs and manages the economy seem sufficient. In sum, once monopoly capitalism is regarded as the same thing as socialism, except that the wrong class is in control, the difference between capitalism and socialism is reduced to the difference in who controls. So economic transformation is also reduced to the issue of control, taking power over essentially neutral economic mechanisms. There's no role for theory or philosophy here. Taking power is the key thing. And the key thing needed to take power, of course, is organization. So organization building becomes the central element needed to move from capitalism to socialism. Organization building decoupled from theory and philosophy. That's their view. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing and all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. 
To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. Okay, I'm going to turn to the text of the CGP. Some of the CGP consists of criticism of details of uh, LaSalle's particular ideology. Some of it is criticism of minor points in the Gotha program. I don't want to talk about uh, those things here because I don't think they're very relevant for us today. On the other hand, there are several things in the CGP that do merit discussion, uh, in my view, but which I will also not be talking about. For instance, uh, Marx criticized the notion that labor is the source of all wealth. Uh, he said that the program's call to eliminate all social and political inequality was like a call to abolish slavery on the grounds that the feeding of slaves cannot exceed a certain low maximum. Uh, and part four of the CGP contains important points about the state. It's not something neutral or independent. Existing society is its basis. Uh, and he said that freedom consists in converting the state into an organ that's completely subordinate uh, to society. Uh, I think things like this do merit discussion, but I just won't be talking about them here simply because I don't have time. Uh, I want to focus on what the CGP says about differences between capitalism and communism and about what's got to be changed to transform capitalism into communism. And to discuss this in an intelligible way takes a lot of time, more time than I actually have. Uh, I've edited a 12,000 word paper down to about 4,100 words and I'm not confident uh, that the result is as intelligible as it needs to be. Uh, but here goes. Uh, Marx was extremely critical of the Gotha program's call for, quote, fair distribution of the proceeds of labor. Uh, he asked rhetorically, what is fair distribution? Do not the bourgeois assert that present-day distribution is fair? And is it not, in fact, the only fair distribution on the basis of the present-day mode of production? Are economic relations regulated by legal conceptions? Or do not, on the contrary, legal relations arise from economic ones? Uh, it should be clear that Marx was affirming that present-day distribution is indeed the only fair distribution on the basis of the present-day mode of production. Uh, and here and throughout the uh, CGP, Marx also reaffirmed and emphasized his view of the relation between the basis and the superstructure of society. In the sentences I quoted, he indicated that the mode of production is the basis and that legal relations arise from economic ones. And this is very similar to, similar to what he wrote in his 1859 preface to the contribution of the critique of political economy. Quote, the economic structure of society is the real foundation on which arises a legal and political superstructure. Uh, it's also noteworthy that even though income distribution or distribution of means of consumption is in some sense an economic relation, Marx did not include it within the basis or economic structure of society. Uh, the text here indicates that it is a legal relation and thus part of the superstructure. It arises from the economic structure. Uh, closely, re closely related to Marx's view that superstructural relations arise from those of the economic basis 
is his further contention that the former superstructural relations correspond to the latter, the basis. He criticized the draft program for treating relations of distribution as independent of, rather than dependent upon, the mode of production, and therefore for portraying redistribution as the crux of socialist transformation. Uh, and he asked, after the real relation has long been made clear, why retrogress again? Okay, Marx's discussion of communist society begins as follows, quote, Within the collective society, based on the common ownership of the means of production, the producers do not exchange their products. Just as little does the labor employed on the products appear here as the value of these products, as a material quality possessed by them, since now, in contrast to capitalist society, individual labor no longer exists in an indirect fashion, but directly as a component part of total labor. This sentence specifies four different respects in which communist society will differ from capitalist society. There will be common ownership of the means of production. There will be no exchange of products. The products will not be values or have value. And labor will be directly social. All four differences are either profound changes in the mode of production or immediate implications of such changes. And one of them, common ownership of the means of production, implies that the society is classless. Okay, Marx then immediately indicated that he was dealing here with the first phase of communist society, quote, just as it emerges from capitalist society. So Marx was saying that all four of these elements pertain to the lower phase of communism, not only to the higher phase. Given later claims people have made about the relationship between the two phases, that is extremely important. The break from capitalism is complete, at least in these four respects, from the very start of the lower phase of communism, just as it emerges from capitalism. And taken together, these four changes constitute a revolutionary transformation of the entire mode of production. Thus, the lower phase of communism, as Marx conceived it, is not a transitional society, in the sense of a society with a mixed economy, or an economy that occupies a position somewhere in between capitalism and communism. It is, as the text says, a communist society. Now, Marx did write that the lower phase of communism is stamped with the birthmarks of the old society and encumbered by a bourgeois limitation. However, these remarks have nothing to do with the four differences between capitalism and communism he singled out here. They don't call into question the point that all four of these elements of communism are already present from the start of communism's lower phase. Okay, before continuing with the CGP's discussion of differences between capitalism and communism, it's going to be helpful to clarify the meaning of his concept of directly social labor. Uh, it's quite important for understanding the next several paragraphs uh, of the CGP. Uh, the word translated as directly unmittelbar is also sometimes translated as immediately. Uh, un under commodity production, labor is not immediately social. The labor performed by an individual does not immediately qualify as an act of social labor, a contribution to society. To qualify as social labor, additional conditions must be satisfied. In communist society, however, the labor performed by an individual will immediately qualify as social labor, a 
a contribution to society, whether or not additional conditions are satisfied. What additional conditions are salient in commodity-producing societies, but not in either phase of communist society? Uh, they can be summed up by saying that an individual's labor qualifies as social labor only if, and only to the extent that it creates value. Uh, and an, an individual's labor creates value only to the extent that it is socially necessary. Any labor expended on the production of a product that exceeds the socially necessary amount doesn't create value, does not qualify as social labor. So if a worker is taking nine hours to produce a product, but eight hours is the socially necessary amount, only eight hours of her labor qualifies as social labor, and only eight-ninths of her labor creates value. Okay, but what makes a particular amount of labor time socially necessary, a greater amount excessive? Uh, in Marx's theory, the amount of labor that's socially necessary to produce a commodity is the average amount that's required, given average technical conditions. Okay, I hope to show that this interpretation of directly and indirectly social labor gives rise to an interpretation of the ensuing discussion in the CGP that's plausible and that clarifies aspects of it that would otherwise seem confusing or obscure. Okay, now the CGP does not say much about the relation between directly social labor and the other elements of communist society that distinguish it from capitalism. But Marx did discuss this in his contribution to the critique of political economy when criticizing John Gray's labor money scheme. Gray had advocated elimination of commodity exchange without also advocating elimination of commodity production. And Marx thought this was an unviable combination. He argued that commodity exchange could be eliminated only when, quote, the labor time contained in commodities is immediately social labor time. Okay, or labor time containing products. In other words, when an hour of labor expended to produce a product immediately qualifies as an hour of social labor. Okay, but that quote presupposes that it is communal labor time or labor time of directly associated individuals. Right, Marx said if labor were directly social, it would indeed be impossible for gold or silver to confront other commodities as the incarnation of universal labor, that is, as money and exchange value would not be turned into price. But neither would use value be turned into exchange value, and the product into a commodity, and thus the very basis of bourgeois production would be abolished. Okay, this critique of Gray suggests that capitalist society, and therefore its defects, have a hierarchical structure. To eliminate the ills associated with the apex of the hierarchy, money, which is what Gray desired, we must go all the way down eliminate the whole hierarchical structure by uprooting its foundation. And that requires new relations of production that make labor directly rather than indirectly social, including communal production by directly associated individuals, not commodity producers. Okay, so let's return now to the text of the CGP. Uh, immediately after noting that, quote, we are dealing with a communist society just as it emerges from capitalist society, Marx wrote, the individual producer receives back from society exactly what he gives to it. What he has given to it is his individual quantum of labor. He receives a certificate from society that he has furnished such and such an amount of labor and draws from the social stock of means of consumption as much as the same amount of labor costs. 
Uh, the aspect of this paragraph that's received the most attention is its discussion of the relations of distribution. What has received much less attention is what this paragraph and the ones that follow say about the relations of production. Perhaps what he has given to it is his individual quantum of labor and instances in which Marx wrote in the same paragraph that labor is what the producer gives, contributes, furnishes. Perhaps all of this seems merely to be stating a fact that exists in every kind of society and thus something too obvious and mundane to be worthy of comment. But why didn't Marx say that the producer has given to society a product or a thing of value? Why did he say that the producer has given his individual quantum of labor? Why didn't he say a quantum of socially necessary labor? Uh, in light of Marx's earlier references to directly social labor and the elimination of value relations, isn't the choice of words significant? The next paragraph in the text explains why Marx wrote individual quantum of labor rather than something else. Quote, here, obviously, the same principle prevails as that which regulates the exchange of commodities as far as this is the exchange of equal values. Content and form are changed because, under the altered circumstances, no one can give anything except his labor. And because, on the other hand, nothing can pass to the ownership of individuals uh, except individual means of consumption. So, in Marx's view, the principle that's going to prevail in the lower phase of communism isn't the same as the principle that prevails under commodity production in every respect. It's only the same with respect to relations of distribution. What's not the same are the relations of production, the altered circumstances. And so the content and form of the exchange also differ from exchanges that prevail under commodity production. In the lower phase of communism, the individual producer gives to society his individual quantum of labor because no one can give anything except his labor. No one gives either value or products. The producer's labor no longer contributes value to products because the products are no longer values. And individual producers don't provide products because the producers don't own the products as individuals. Okay, on a superficial reading of those uh, two paragraphs of the CGP, Marx's discussion of labor certificates looks just like the same labor money scheme that he had long excoriated when John Gray or Proudhon or others had proposed it. But it rests on an entirely different economic foundation. The proposals Marx criticized were intended to institute equal exchange in a society in which labor was only indirectly social. In contrast, his discussion of labor certificates pertains to a society in which labor is directly social. So, owing to the revolutionary transformation of the economic foundation, the point is, exchange, rate, exchange relations that were not viable in a commodity producing society have now become so. So Marx's discussion of labor certificates is not really a proposal. He didn't use any language that would suggest that he was advocating anything or choosing one possibility from among multiple viable ones. His discussion is an analysis of the new relations of distribution that the new mode of production will make possible. And it's the beginning of an argument that the new relations of distribution correspond to the new mode of production. That is, an argument that the relations of distribution 
These ones, or very similar ones, are the only ones that are going to be viable in the lower phase of communism. Okay, Marx then uh, turned to producers' rights to means of consumption in the lower phase of communism. Uh, he wrote, as far as the distribution of the means of consumption among individual producers is concerned, the same principle prevails as in the exchange of commodity equivalents. A given amount of labor in one form is exchanged for an equal amount of labor in another form. Hence, equal right is here is still in principle bourgeois right, although principle and practice are no longer at loggerheads, while the exchange of equivalents in commodity exchange exists only on the average, not in the individual case. After stating that the same principle prevails as in the exchange of commodity equivalents, Marx introduced an all-important caveat. In a commodity-producing society, the idea that equal quantities of labor are exchanged prevails only in principle, not in actual practice. Principle and practice are at loggerheads because the exchanges that take place involve equal amounts of labor only on average, not in any individual case. In the lower phase of communism, in contrast, equal amounts of labor are exchanged in each individual case, so principle and practice are no longer at loggerheads. Uh, to help clarify what Marx is driving at here, assume two commodities of equal value that are exchanged. Even in this case, the amounts of labor expended to produce the two commodities will almost always be unequal because, according to Marx's theory, commodities values are determined by the average, socially necessary, amount of labor required to produce them, not by the amounts of labor actually expended to produce them in the individual case. For example, uh, if 10 labor hours is the socially necessary amount of labor needed to produce either 20 yards of linen or one coat, the linen and the coat are of equal value but actually 15 hours of labor may have been expended to produce a particular 20 yards of linen if the linen workers used obsolete equipment and maybe only five hours of labor may have been expended to produce a particular coat if these coat producers were assisted by advanced technology. That's not an infringement on the law of value, it's how the law operates, even in the most ideal case. It's how capitalism has to operate. Uh, the linen workers under consideration produce only 20 yards of linen in 15 hours. But average linen workers produce 30 yards. If the capitalist system were to recognize the former workers as having created as much value as the latter create, it would be subsidizing and incentivizing technological backwardness and inefficiency. And if it did that regularly throughout the economy, it would soon collapse. Uh, another implication of the law of value is that if the 20 yards of linen exchange for one coat, the linen workers who work for 15 hours have not been cheated or exploited by the coat producers who work for only 5 hours. The linen workers receive an amount of value equal to the value of the linen they exchange for the coat. Yeah, the linen workers are victims, but what's victimizing them is not the exchange process. They're victims of a society in which one's contribution to social production depends on the number of products one produces and the amount of value one, one creates, which in turn depends on your access to technology, your training, your abilities, and on whether your product is a social use value. Marx was therefore suggesting that in the lower phase of communism, things would be different in this way. If a worker worked for 15 hours, all of that labor would immediately qualify as social labor. 
irrespective of the vintage of the equipment with which she worked, the amount of products she produced, and so forth. And the value of what she produced would also not matter since value relations wouldn't even exist. This is a difference in the relations of production, uh, in particular a difference between directly and indirectly social labor. At issue are what qualifies as a contribution to social production and what the societies produce, only use values or values as well. Marx was not making a standalone point about distribution, that a worker works for 15 hours will receive products whose labor time costs 15 hours, much less was that a proposal. His point was that this new relation of distribution corresponds to and is made possible by the direct sociality of labor and other new relations of production that have enabled communist society to advance beyond capitalism. Marx then wrote, quote, in spite of this advance, this equal right is still constantly encumbered by a bourgeois limitation. The right of the producers is proportional to the labor they supply but one man is superior to another physically or mentally, and so supplies more labor in the same time or can work for a longer time. This equal right is an unequal right for unequal labor. Okay, that paragraph, which I've only quoted part of, is mostly about how the amount of labor contributed will be measured, or more precisely, about what will qualify as performance of labor. Marx indicated that the amount of labor performed will depend on its intensity and duration. Quote, supplies more labor in the same time or can work for a longer time. Duration refers to how long a worker works. Intensity refers to how hard or how diligently she works, how much labor she supplies within a span of time. To understand this paragraph's references to labor as an equal standard, to unequal labor and to the amount of labor supplied, it's crucial not to confuse intensity with productivity. Productivity of labor refers to how much product a unit of labor produces, not to how hard or diligently the worker works. Productivity thus depends greatly on technology. Because of differences in technology, the productivity of two workers who work equally long and equally hard can be vastly different. Okay, but Marx was discussing actual labor here, measured in terms of duration and intensity, not productivity. So the paragraph does not stipulate any condition that labor must satisfy to qualify as social labor. It does not say that the worker's contribution to society depends on how much product she produces. Instead, Marx was saying that there will be equal right for equal quantities of labor, actual labor that has been contributed. The phrase unequal right for unequal labor doesn't contradict it, it's, it's corollary. Okay, Marx's point was not that some acts of labor will be more equal than others, to paraphrase Orwell, uh, because they produce more products or value. The point was simply that some workers will perform more labor than others, work longer and or harder or more diligently. The phrase unequal labor refers to these differences in the actual quantities of labor performed and to that alone. So, unequal right for unequal labor is a bourgeois limitation only in the following respects. First, producers' rights to products will depend on how much labor they contribute. 
Marx regarded the very existence of a link between what one contributes and what one receives as a bourgeois limitation, but that only becomes clear a bit later in the text. Second, the link between contribution and receipt will exist in the lower phase of communism even though the amount of labor a person contributes is only partly something they choose freely. It also depends on innate differences. Marx then briefly considers the higher phase of communist society. Uh, he argued that the higher phase requires further revolutionary transformations of the mode of production. Uh, they don't replace the communist mode of production of the lower phase with a different one. There are additional differences from what exists under capitalism. Uh, Marx specifies the following further transformations. An end to all divisions of labor, including between mental and manual labor, transformation of the nature of work so that it becomes life's prime want instead of a necessary burden. Further development of the forces of production, including both technological development and all-round development of individuals, uh, and an increase in production. What was Marx driving at here? It becomes clearer when we reflect on his point that the distributive principle, from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs, that can prevail, he says, only after the mode of production has been further transformed in the above ways. So what exactly is the meaning of the distributive principle when it's understood in light of that requirement? Why are the further transformations required? And what degree of transformation is required? In the lower phase of communism, the capitalist mode of production is completely overcome. But there's still a link between what one receives and what one contributes. Marx was now envisioning instead the achievement of a society in which that link can finally be broken. Everyone will contribute according to their abilities without regard to what they receive in return. And they will receive in accordance with their needs without regard to what they have contributed. That's the literal meaning of the distributive principle in question. In light of Marx's earlier statement that equal right for equal labor is a bourgeois limitation, from which the lower phase of communism suffers, I think that's the only plausible way to read this. And gigantic transformations of the mode of production would be needed in order to break the link between contribution and receipt. Before people would be willing to contribute without regard to what they receive, work would have to become something we want to do rather than something we have to do. Before people can receive without regard to what they contribute, there would have to be genuine abundance which would require an immense increase in production made possible by an immense development of technology uh, and uh, of individuals' abilities. And elimination of all divisions of labor, that's a crucial aspect of the needed transformation of the nature of work, and it also helps to remove a key obstacle to uh, individuals' development and thus to the expansion of production. Right before discussing the higher phase of communism, Marx wrote that defects, in other words, links between contribution and receipt, quote, are inevitable in the first phase of communist society. Right can never be higher than the economic structure of society and its cultural development, which this determines. This remark was a fitting culmination of his whole discussion of the revolutionary transformation of capitalism into communism. It pithily summarizes his concretization of the base superstructure relation with respect to production and distribution. How production and distribution are related in capitalism, in the lower phase of communism, in the higher phase. In all three cases, 
rights to the product are only as high as society's economic structure. Uh, Present-day distribution of income corresponds to the present-day mode of production. That's fair distribution given the capitalist mode of production. Income distribution in the lower phase of communism will be based on the amounts of labor workers perform. That'll be fair distribution given the degree of development of the communist mode of production in its lower phase. Income distribution in the higher phase of communism will be based on need and decoupled from individuals' productive contributions. And that will be fair distribution given the degree of development of the communist mode of production in its higher phase. There's only one little remaining discussion of the transformation of capitalism into communism apart from passing remarks uh, in the CGP. It comes near the end. Marx wrote, quote, between capitalist and communist society lies the period of the revolutionary transformation of the one into the other. Corresponding to this is also a political transition period in which the state can be nothing but the revolutionary dictatorship of the proletariat. Uh, the meaning of this statement has been the subject of considerable controversy. Much of the controversy stems from failure to recognize that the CGP had argued earlier that with respect to society's mode of production, the break from capitalism is complete from the start of the lower phase of communism. Phrases like same principle and defects, bourgeois limitation, they do not imply that vestiges of the capitalist mode of production persist. Failure to, appreci failure to appreciate this crucial, crucial fact has led to the strange conclusion that the lower phase of communism is somehow not a phase of communism. It's misconstrued as something that exists between capitalist and communist society, and thus as a phase in which the state continues to exist. But as we've seen, the CGP had indeed argued earlier that a communist society that has just emerged from capitalist society is a communist society. It's not a transitional society, it's not one with a mixed economy. Its economic structure is fully communist. Given this fact, the controversial sentences become unambiguous and precise. The period of revolutionary transformation between capitalist and communist society precedes the lower phase of communism, which is part of communist society. The political transition period and its state correspond to the period of revolutionary transformation that precedes the lower phase of communism. They don't continue into it. And from the start of the lower phase of communism, the society is classless. And that's completely incompatible with the situation in which one class, the proletariat, exercises political power over other classes. I, I just don't see how any other reading of these two sentences is even remotely uh, plausible. Thank you. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies.